Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Greenlight Guru is committed to improving the quality of life, and now we're ready to improve the quality of education and training in the medical device industry. Greenlight Guru Academy is a comprehensive training resource for anyone looking to learn industry best practices with actionable training from industry experts. You'll get on-demand courses that allow you to move at your own pace on topics related to quality and regulatory product development, design controls, risk management, doc control. Honestly, it's too many to fit into a short ad. So if you're ready to level up your medical device education, visit greenlight.guru forward slash academy today. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. My name is Etienne Nichols, and I'm the host of today's episode. In today's episode, we spoke with Kyle Rose on the topic of EUA and the transition away from emergency use authorization. Kyle is the president of RookQS and works as a contract quality manager for multiple medical device companies, overseeing overall quality strategy, ensuring compliance through documentation and auditing services. Kyle is also a certified quality auditor, CQA, and has regulatory and submission experience for a variety of markets, including FDA, CE Mark, Health Canada, and CFDA. We cover a lot of ground. We talk about things like What is the history and known timelines for EUA? What should companies be doing in preparation for the transition? What are the best practices when it comes to complying with the FDA guidance? And much more, if you're a company that is preparing to transition away from EUA, I'd like to hear from you. So let us know. We love hearing from those in the trenches, and it'd be great to hear what your experience is currently. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode with Kyle Rose on the EUA and its impending transition. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is Etienne Nichols, your host. Today with me is Kyle Rose. Kyle, it's so good to have you back on the show. How are you doing? Thanks, man. Great to be back as well. Definitely excited to, to be back. It's, it feels like it's been a while since I've been on the podcast. But yeah, definitely excited to chat with you uh, and go over some of this EUA uh, transition timeline stuff. Yeah. So the thing with the EUA, I, was, I just wanted to ask you real quick. I haven't seen an actual deadline yet. Do we have an EUA transition deadline? No. So they have a draft guidance that proposes timelines, but there is no deadline yet as to when this whole EUA process will end. I think it might be in phases as well. So there might be certain products that get termination earlier than other products would be my leaning. I, you know, from some of the stuff we've heard, it's still probably sometime next year that they would do this. So I don't think it's anything super, super urgent, but as we'll talk about, I think there's still stuff that companies can do to prepare now and, and probably should do as well, just to make sure they're still compliant and, and we'll be ready when this goes into effect. Yeah. And that's a great point. Maybe before we get into what you need to do to prepare for that, I mean, what kind of impact does it have on people once that EOA is over? Do you have thoughts on what the transition is going to look like so far? Yeah, no, I mean, I think, and, and just highlighting a little bit about the EUA process, right, for, for companies Please. that might not be super familiar. So during the COVID pandemic, the FDA proposed this emergency use authorization. And it was for a wide, or is for quite a few types of products. So most people think traditionally of, of your COVID diagnostics and your masks and things like that, but they also have guidances for other things like remote monitoring tools, tools that are allowed to provide oxygen and and different 
things for people, um, SAMD devices for treating psychiatric disorders, sterilizers and disinfectors. So there's a, a wide range of other devices that kind of tie in closely with the COVID pandemic and the public health emergency that also have modifications to their traditional regulatory scope during COVID. So the FDA allowed and, and put out guidances for all of these different types of devices and diagnostics to say, hey, you can either expand your scope or you can put this new device on the market without a traditional 510K or, or registration just to allow easier access for these devices, allow people to use them in new settings, such as at home, if it was currently used for just in a hospital setting, the FDA allowed more devices to expand their scope, expand their use, and in some cases go to market without having previously submitted to the FDA. So this whole process was really a great tool. FDA provided a ton of information, uh, especially on the diagnostic side, on exactly what they're looking for, um, which is some people have seen with 510K, sometimes it'd be hard to know exactly you're searching for predicates and what tests that they do. Um, the EUA templates provided a really good outline of what was needed, but the whole transition is this is eventually going to come to an end, right? So yeah. this is going to end and companies have to figure out what to do to go back to the traditional regulatory path for their device or their expansion of labeling and use to maintain compliance. So that's the big thing is what do we do next? How long is this going to last? And what documentation do we need to collect and show to keep selling this device if these companies want to? Yeah. I assume there's a lot of companies that maybe they weren't medical device companies before the pandemic, but they jumped in, you know, to help out with the masks with the, like you mentioned, maybe software companies helping with the psychiatric side and so forth. So I would hope, of course, you know, we've been in this pandemic for a little while. Likely they know what they need to be doing to be correct as far as yeah, and not just saying, hey, I'm an emergency device. I'm just going to go do my thing. I mean, there there's processes to become EUA. But what, a, and maybe you could talk a little bit about that, but also on the quality side. So we've got the regulatory side with the, with the um, EUA submission yeah. type thing. But then also from the quality side, what were the requirements there? Like if I'm an EUA yeah. uh, company, what do I need to be doing right now? And then we'll talk about to prepare. Yeah, what are your thoughts? Yeah, and that was kind of the the scary part coming from you know me as a as a heavy proponent of quality systems and a quality system consultant was uh, some of the original templates from the FDA specifically for the diagnostics were had language in there that said you can you can skip certain requirements for um, the quality system regulations. You can skip some design control on some things like that. And some companies really took that to heart and, and didn't do much at all, if any, on the DHF and the risk side. So the majority of the companies that we worked with, and we've worked with over 50 COVID diagnostics, as well as all the other types of devices as well, we were you know, pretty strong on that. You still need to do some documentation. It might not be as, as stringent as you typically do. But we always said, even from the start, that you needed to have some DHF and, and risk in place, right? Because if you don't document it, how do you know what you're making? Stuff like that. But there definitely were companies that went straight to testing, got an EUA and even some of the early EUA process that got through and we've talked to them since then and there's big gaps. They don't have a DHF. They don't have a strong quality system in place. A lot of them, like you said, 
were coming from not manufacturing devices. We met some carpet manufacturers that started making face masks. We met, you know, academic labs that had never worked in any regulated industry and are now making medical devices. So there's a lot of knowledge gap. And I still think there's a lot of companies out there that got an EUA, are selling product, but still have have lots of gaps, both on the quality system side, and, and that's going to translate into the regulatory side as well. Yeah, I don't know if you have, I mean, I'll just ask, do you have any numbers as far as who you think maybe they're EUA now and they plan to continue after the EUA transition closes out? Or are there is there a certain number who are going to say, you know what, we're done with medical device or any thoughts? Yeah, I, I don't know for sure as far as like percentage, how many are going to continue. Uh, you know, I think there are a lot of devices in the market, but, you know, as we're seeing even now, the more people I talk to, I'm seeing a lot more people that are having, you know, spouts with COVID again, right? It's every day I meet somebody else that has it. And then, so definitely not going away. So I think the need for tests and, and masks and all that stuff is still going to be there. So I would assume most of these companies are going to continue. I would guess, you know, if they were the ones that that did very little on the quality and regulatory side and then see how much it is to catch up, they might be the ones that are, you know, determining whether or not it's worth the investment to keep up with the device and go through this whole regulatory 510k process um, as well. But yeah. hard to say how many are going to, you know, keep it. I, I think it did start a lot of companies that, that saw the opportunity and created a company just from this um, need for these medical products and this public health emergency. So I definitely think there's, there's hopefully lots of companies that were established and, and helped maintain and either pivot into other types of diagnostics or markets or still continue to support COVID related products as well. Yeah, that's a good point. It probably is going to boil down to a lot of financial side, I'm sure. Yeah, um, just like everything. Yeah. 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 So. Interesting side note. You mentioned, you know, a lot of people start getting spouse with COVID. I currently have COVID. <laughs> so, you know, forgive me, you know, yeah. if I'm not at 100%, yeah. but they yeah. tell me, hey, you should be, at least be able to be 80. So that's where I'm at. That's, so anyway, uh, that's, that's, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's okay. I'm, I'm okay. Yeah, it's uh... <laughs> And then take a day off at some point. <laughs> <laughs> not, not when you work from home, not yeah. allowed. <laughs> uh, so let's get into the transition. So these companies that are, you know, they, they've got their EUA in place. Uh, what does that transition look like? Yeah, and, and that's a good point. And so a lot of them do have an EUA. There are some that FDA also said, we're not regulating this. So you're able to sell it within this scope, but you don't necessarily have an EUA. So there are some that formally submitted an EUA. Just to clarify, there are some products like a lot of the psychiatric ones that didn't necessarily have to submit, but they are within that medical scope of providing medical. So it's kind of a, a hybrid of both. So a lot of them did have stuff reviewed. Some just went straight to market without any EUA or any other review. So there is kind of a transition for a lot of these that will need rethinking on the regulatory side and additional quality regulatory. But as far as your original question, yeah, so they, FDA put out this guidance in, in December 2020, outlining the three phases of this transition period, right? So when they give this date that says the PHE and the EUA process is going to end, everybody needs to comply, they're timeline is 180 days from this date, right? So there's a phase one, phase two, phase three, that kind of breaks down what you need to do at each section. And within this transition, they've outlined kind of what you need to start to comply with, what records you need to start to populate. And then if you are one of the devices that fall into the 
we need to file a new regulatory submission or we need to amend our current for this updated labeling or expansion of use, um, then you need to do that as well. But high level timelines, there's the initial date and then there's 180 days to the phase three. So six months roughly to do this. Phase one is pretty easy. The, the only thing that they're really wanting companies to do is to start to comply with the adverse event reporting requirements. So make sure you have your procedures in place for your MDRs and make sure that if there are any adverse events that happen during this use and you didn't submit them for some reason, that you do submit them to the FDA, which was something I was a little surprised by. The reporting has always been part of the IVD specific EUA. So I was a little surprised to see that some of these allowed for adverse events that weren't reported, but that is part of the phase one is to make sure you have procedures and training for adverse event reporting, and then make sure you submit anything that happened while this device was used under EUA. Which, you know, to your point, that suggests that you should be tracking that currently. Exactly. Yeah. So if you're not currently tracking that, that is something. And, and like I said, we've seen companies that have never sold in the U.S. They didn't necessarily have the procedures in place. You know, same thing. They had a, a diagnostic in another country that they were selling and it was very good with uh, detecting COVID. And they put it on the market for FDA EUA, but they didn't necessarily have procedures for for the FDA MDR reporting. So that's a big gap for those companies as well as making sure that they add that. Because just if you're following CE, if you're following ISO, the reporting requirements, as you know, are different for the FDA, right? So you have to have that in place and then follow those, file those reports as needed. So those adverse events, um, how do they need to be basically uh, um, documenting all customer feedback or is it, um, you know, I don't know, just, what what thoughts can you give there? Yeah, I, I mean, you, as you know, right, the, the process of, of getting all feedback and then evaluation first, is it an adverse event? Was somebody seriously injured or, or killed? And then second, if that doesn't apply, is it a complaint? Alleging deficiencies to all the scope of, of what that is for the FDA. Um, if not, then it's just your normal feedback. But in order to actually be able to identify adverse events, you have to have a process in place and documentation and, and training of the people involved yeah. uh, to be able to identify what is an adverse event, what's the complaint, what's just general feedback stuff. Okay, yeah, makes sense. Okay, so that's phase one. What about phase two? Or did we miss anything with phase one? No, no, that's that's phase one. Phase two would be 90 days after. And this has three kind of parts. So the, the first one is, is FDA registration. So this is if you're planning to continue to sell the device, you need to go ahead and register with the FDA. For companies that have never done this before, pretty straightforward process. You go on the FDA's website, you pay your fee in the 5,000, 6,000 per year range, and you submit the information on your company. And two or three days later, you're on the FDA's website and a few weeks later, they send you your registration number. So pretty straightforward process, but it opens you up to your formally on the FDA's radar. You can get audited, all that type of stuff. So if you haven't done your registration, you'll need to go ahead and do that as part of that phase two, which is 90 days after phase one. You'll also need to comply with the removals and corrections part of 21 CFR. So that's part 806. So make sure you have that. And then if you are a life 
supporting or sustaining device, there's some requirements on notification of that as well. So if you are a life supporting, life sustaining device, the FDA wants to have a notification of intent that you continue to move forward with this as well. So a little bit more formal process for these higher risk devices that you're going to work with the FDA. They want to know kind of what guidance you were using, what number or submission number, if you had an EUA or a previous 510K, model numbers, manufacturing information around the manufacturer, and if you're going to submit, uh, and if there's any amendments to your current 510K. So this would apply on some of the ones that might have changed indications, might have expanded the scope of use type thing that they'll need to work proactively with the FDA with this um, notification of intent in phase two. Okay, cool. So that's, we got uh, phase one and then phase two, 90 days out. Some of those things that you mentioned, like uh, as far as registering your company, but then also the device itself. Okay, so it makes sense. What about phase three? What do we got in that one? Yeah, so phase three is kind of the coming to the end. So this will be the 180 days after the implementation date. And this is really where you have to either be in compliance or you have to remove your device. So this is the end of this six month period. This is when you would have to have your full quality system compliance. So you need to have compliance to the rest of the 21 CFR. So everything needs to be in place for your device. Um, UDI compliance needs to be done as well. So that was a big one that a lot of companies that was waived during the EUA for everything, waived for diagnostic, waived for everything. Uh, and for anybody that's gone through UDI in the past, they know it's yeah. a pretty big process, just all the labeling, all the filing, all that barcode creation stuff. It's pretty big. So the UDI as well as the full quality system, I think are the two biggest things. The other one is is on the submission side, right? So if you haven't already identified whether or not your device needs a regulatory submission, you need to do that. And you need to submit this before phase three. So it's kind of phase three is the end of it, but you really should start working on this regulatory submission, whether it's a 510K, a Genovo submission, a PMA, whatever it might be. You need to start working on this before phase three. If you haven't submitted your new submission, we'll say 510K, for example, before phase three, they're going to assume you're not going to continue to distribute your device. So phase three feels like it has some extra time. There's an extra 90 days, but really, if you haven't submitted, you're already way behind. So when this date comes, you should be looking at phase one. We need to really start as soon as we can with the submission because six months is not a lot of time when it comes to putting together an FDA submission, especially if there's gaps from your design and testing and, and risk analysis and documentation of software, hardware, all that stuff, six months is, is moving very quick to put a, a 510K together. So yeah, um, phase three is really that, that kind of, we're getting close to the end. If you want to keep, you should have already done a good amount of stuff and they should already be talking with the FDA. You should be under the review um, by that phase three timeline. Yeah. And that's, that's the part that I kind of wanted to ask you a little bit about from your experience, when you see someone, let, let's just assume we've got a company that has a, we'll, we'll just go with something simple, like, uh, well, yeah, we'll go with a class one device, I guess. I don't know what all EUAs, I don't know enough about, are they typically class two? Do you know of the breakdown there? It is some class two. It is some of the software ones fall in the class one as well. So it, there's a little, a mix of both. Okay. 
well, let's just assume we have a, a device that they don't have a quality management system. They're looking at these dates. Is it 30 days was phase one? Yeah. So phase one, it's, I think it's 90 days. And 90. then, yeah, so it's kind of 90, 90, and then phase yeah. three. Yeah. Okay. Is that right? Actually, let's just double check that. I'm, uh, I'm sure you got the numbers up there. Phase one, phase two would be 90 in. And so 90 from phase one to phase two is 90, from phase two to phase three is 90. And then phase three, it says 180 days after implementation. So, okay. Yeah. Okay. So phase three is really the, they're going to start removing stuff from the market if you haven't submitted. So that's kind of like phase three is really the end of the 180 days, but it's still like an ongoing process. If you've already submitted that you can still sell, but you should have already had it in the works and talked to the FDA, gotten something on their radar, you submitted, you're in the process before phase three. Okay. Thank you for that clarification. I don't think, I think I missed that, um, that fact. Okay. So let's say we've got a company that doesn't have a quality management system and they're thinking, okay, well, once this is implemented or this transition timeline is, is basically mandated by the FDA, that's when I'll start working on this. Is that really realistic? I know we said it kind of takes a while, but in your experience, what would a class two device with who they need to uh, submit an FD, uh, 510K, so for the regulatory side, but they also need to implement a quality management system. What do those two things generally look like? I know we got to, you know, without being too specific, what are your thoughts? Yeah. I mean, we typically tell companies kind of six to nine months, um, and that's when the, the product is pretty close to being finished. So at least with these devices, um, we... I would assume that they're they're finished, right? There's no major design changes going on. They've already been selling this through EUA. So that the product should be at a state that we can go back, kind of look at the DHF, do a gap assessment or an audit of the current design and risk and testing, uh, and then start to build that up to get into an actual 510K submission. So hopefully there's there's data they can leverage from some post-market stuff hopefully they did some testing that could potentially go into the 510k but as you know i'm sure looking through companies you've worked with a lot of times there's a big gap between what companies think the testing is required versus what the fda actually wants to see and, and what falls within the actual regulations of med device testing so um i, I think Six months is what we six to nine months is what we typically say. So I think that's that's the same approach. You'd you'd want to start planning, you know, a, a little bit in advance, right? To to get this in time. Yeah. And I definitely would underscore what you said about UDI. And for those of if there's yeah. someone who's listening to EUA who maybe they're not familiar with a UDI, which could you know potentially yeah. be the case, but unique di- device identification, that's the specific number that goes on your device and goes into the G- yeah. Good idea. <laughs> All these acronyms that FDA has. Yeah. And so anyway, that, yeah, there's lots of different little nuances. I don't know. Are, any others that you've seen that you anticipate potentially being a pitfall for some of these companies? I think that the UDI is, is definitely a big one. I think specifically with our work on some of the, the CBT or the SAMD psychiatric devices, the FDA wanted kind of a high level, you know, what testing did you do? Did you have traceability? Did you have cybersecurity? But with a traditional software submission for a 510K, there's a lot more documentation on the risk analysis, all the requirement definition, and then also matching it 
to a predicate. So um, that can be a part of it that's, that's really hard too. If you have a device that's indicated for some type of disease or disorder, and there wasn't a clear predicate, you might have to go into a de novo path, even though you were already selling it under this EUA process. If there's not a clear predicate, it can be pretty hard for you to make the case that you're substantially equivalent to another product, right? So that that kind of gap in, in a lot of those behavioral therapy and psychiatric disorder software devices or digital therapeutics on the actual predicates is something that we've seen working with some of these that, that might be hard. You might think, oh, it's it's clear we've already done all the testing, but the, the predicate part can be hard as well uh, as finding a predicate. And then on the diagnostic side, you know, the FDA had a pretty good plan of how many people you needed to test, how many symptomatic not and asymptomatic you needed to test for this actual diagnostic in the EUA, it's a lot more for the 510K. So there's already some 510Ks that have been cleared for COVID diagnostics, but it's a lot more data that you need to show for that. So I think that's a big gap. The EUA templates are great, but you're going to need a lot more data um, to actually submit your 510K. That's a really good point, which you mentioned as far as the de novo process and the potential that you might you might not. So that's almost something that I guess in my mind, I could see that that could be something a company could be doing right now. Hey, is there a predicate? You know, that seems like a pretty no brainer. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. And it definitely you know, is going to change your timelines, right? If you're doing de novo, you, you might need some pre-submissions. You might need additional just regulatory planning and, and conversation with the FDA. So that might go from six to nine months to well over a year quickly, right? So if that's the case and you have in selling and you're currently, you know, targeting a medical software therapy type device, you definitely want to look at that early on in the process as well. Yeah. And I want to ask something else about the adverse events we talked about with phase one and how they need to be start reporting, yeah. reporting those things as well as submitting anything that had been reported. So question about that almost feels like a little bit of a, uh, I don't know, a loophole. <laughs> if I'm a company and maybe I haven't been supporting it, it might be tempting to say, well, we haven't gotten any. And yeah. uh, in the event that that happens, obviously, aside from the ethical side of lying, I mean, you don't want, I, I would hope none of the listeners yeah. would be in that situation. Yeah. But what is the what is the case if you haven't been paying attention to that or if you haven't been recording those? What's the, uh, of just not submitting anything? Any thoughts on how the, the FDA could respond? Yeah, I mean, if you haven't submitted them and you have essentially a backlog of these, then, you know, I think you definitely need to have the additional quality paperwork in place that kind of follows along. So, you know, the adverse event report is part of it, but also you would need to have some some carry on corrective actions or design changes or things that say, hey, we identified this issue and then we went through the proper quality system steps to address it and fix it. And now it's no longer an issue. I, I think trying to just say, hey, here's a bunch of adverse events that happened and, and we don't have any solution is, is not the best strategy. So definitely like doing the, the full quality system scope of addressing whatever the issue was, investigating, was it related to your product or not, or your device, and then moving forward with any design changes, labeling change, software, all that type of stuff that goes with it. But again, this ties back to, heavy quality system stuff uh, that needs to be properly documented as well. Yeah. So it's interesting because I can appreciate what the FDA is trying to do. And I actually really am impressed that they pulled this off and they have these devices. I mean, that's a really great program. Yeah, it was um, awesome. 
but now they're trying to to implement it in phases, but it's, it's a mess. It's kind of a, I don't know, like a ball of yarn. Do, do, yeah. Can you submit adverse events and say, we didn't, we don't have a CAPA system because we don't have a quality management system. So there's, I, yeah. I mean, that's always been our argument. Uh, you know, obviously quality system consultant, I'm a big proponent of quality systems and, and documenting it, not just because the regulations say, because it improves your company, right. And improves your product. Um, so yeah, that, that's been our approach the whole time is, you know, you, you need to have this high level stuff in place for that reason. If, if you make a bunch of devices and, and you got through the bench testing, but you put them out in the market and they're not working and you're getting adverse events and complaints, then hey, nobody's going to buy it. But also you have all this regulatory headache that you have to submit and document and do all that as well. So, yeah. And that, so last, one of the last questions, I guess, and we'll ask if, you know, if, if we miss anything, maybe you can, we could circle back. So there's a transition away from the EUA to, to, terminate it, turn, turn off this program, which, you know, obviously a few years out from the pandemic, that totally makes sense. Do you see anything like a potential for this to be something of a norm in certain situations? Or I know we, there are different programs as far as, uh, but I don't know, is this something, what are your thoughts there? Yeah. I mean, I think there, I think it definitely was a good program and, and continues to be. And I think uh, a lot of the effort that the FDA did just to provide all this information and guidance around the templates and providing updates and town halls and guidances was amazing and a huge effort. And I think it definitely should hopefully leak into other areas. They're providing more of this guidance and more clear identification of what they want companies to do to get to market. I know like uh, some of the safety and performance pathways that have been opened up for other devices where FDA says, hey, you don't necessarily have to have a predicate. You can do this testing and submit and you're on. I think that might open up some of the pathways for this as well. They did it a really good job, you know, with the COVID diagnostics on on what exactly they wanted to see and how they wanted to format it. Hopefully that can go into other things as well in the future. I think that would be, I think that'd be great as far as upcoming stuff, you know, who knows when the next pandemic is coming, hopefully not anytime soon. I think we're all tired of pandemics, but yeah, I think it's, at least they have a framework in place on, on how to address it uh, efficiently uh, and, and still get products to market that I think are, are really useful. Something else that occurred to me, it seems like a, maybe a, an off topic situation, like a periphery topic, but QMSR, when we have the FDA is planning to align part 820, with ISO 1345, likely when we have this transition, that is probably going to be similar timelines, I would assume. So yeah. that might be worth mentioning. Do you, do you want to touch on that? Yeah. And I think that this kind of path of how they're breaking out the phases and how companies will need to address gaps and, and move towards compliance, I think could follow a similar pathway as well. And uh, yeah, the, the QMSR stuff, I think will probably be more 2023, where they really publish what they're going to do and what it's going to look like. And then probably uh, two years, year or two years for actual implementation. So we're looking 24, 25, but there, there will be overlaps. Some of the stuff I've said on the topic in the past is, you know, is that they already have a really good framework with the MDSAP companion audit documents that outlines and already aligns 21 CFR and 1345. So I think the QMSR information is already out there if you want to go look at it that way. But the transition plan, I think, would follow something like they're doing with the ending of the EUA process. Yeah. So there'll be a guidance document on what you need to do, how it's going to be audited, when that timeline, when it's going to be enforced, all that type of stuff. 
Yeah. And I don't want to just load a lot of information that might necessarily <laughs> be relevant on, on companies who are, hey, I'm just focused on what do I need to do to yeah. be EOA? But, and so I'll just ask, you know, what your advice is. So if I'm a, a company that is planning to do that QMS, et cetera, yeah. planning ahead, is it, would it be best practice to just go ahead and focus, you know what, maybe ISO 1345 is what I should be focusing a little bit more on or I don't know. Yeah. So I think, yeah, definitely if you're a company that is just selling under EUA, say you're one of the ones that started from non-med device, got into EUA, kind of bare bones with your quality system. I think this kind of transition draft document should definitely motivate you to, to get serious on your quality system and get a plan in place for your regulatory if you continue to sell it. And if you're going to build your quality system, I would definitely say you comply with both FDA and ISO. We've had that approach for all of our quality systems, you know, since 2016 when, when the new ISO standard was, was published. And, and we bid all of ours to FDA and ISO um, just because we think it's a more robust and comprehensive QMS. So I definitely think if you're going and you're wanting to build it, don't just stick to 21 CFR because it's only going to last a year or two, right? So go ahead and and build it to both. There's plenty of information out there. Obviously, yeah. Rook helps with that. Greenlight's designed for both as well. So uh, I think if you're going to do it and it's your first one, make sure you're complying with both for sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, this was a great conversation. Did we miss anything? What are some other yeah. pieces of advice? Anything one else? thing. So just the... If you have submitted and it goes past the 180 deadline into phase three, you're still able to sell as long as you're under review. So if you submitted your 510K and that phase three 180 days deadline is passed, they'll still allow you to sell. You'll just have to have some sort of transition plan that you document with the FDA on, on what to do. If you get uh, NSE or non-substantial or they have a ton of additional information requests that might force you to potentially hold your device and not distribute in that time frame. that's still kind of, I think going to be more of a case by case basis. And then the opposite too, if you ignore this or continue to distribute, you will get recalled and the FDA will show up, right? It's, it's going to happen. They've already audited some of these EUA devices. They've already recalled a ton of COVID diagnostics. We had a company we'd worked with and, and they had to go physically view them destroying all this product in wow. person. So wow. <laughs> it's serious. Yeah. If you're not complying and, and you're trying to sell and you haven't you know submitted by this phase three, this is going to, there's going to be a crackdown on, on a lot of these types of products. So make sure you have a plan. Make sure you're planning early, right? Now is probably the time. If you already submitted, you still don't have a QMS or you're already selling under EUA, you don't have a QMS, then there's definitely gaps in the quality and regulatory side for sure. Quick question. So you mentioned a couple of scenarios there. If someone is gets an NSE and not substantially equivalent, you may have to hold the product. You also mentioned if you ignore it, but what about kind of the middle section where what what are some well maybe I should just ask that what are some other options like what if you're rejected or what are some other yeah so similar if you're rejected then you would have to kind of pause selling there are situations where you might have to notify clients in some sort of removal corrections recall fashion it really just depends on the product so the yeah. life sustaining supporting ones are more strict on that um, I would assume some of the, the class ones less strict diagnostics kind of in between. I think it just depends on, on each case by case. 
but yeah, it's definitely something if it was me, I'd want to make sure my 510k is, is already submitted and, and hopefully cleared before even phase one starts, right? Because then yeah. you know you're good, right? You're there's paths out there, especially for the diagnostics to go ahead and start working on this now. So I would start working on that. If you are the case of the you might not have a predicate even though you have a product currently on, then I would start looking at that as well and get some of that conversation going. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Good advice. Cool. Well, anything else or, I mean, I covered a lot there. Yeah, no, I think, I think covered everything I had. Yeah. I think this cool. is good. Yeah, for sure. Well, we'll put some different links in the show notes. Um, obviously the EUA, uh, some of the draft guidance there, we'll put how you can uh, get a hold of Kyle. Um, but yeah, maybe I should just ask that. Kyle, where can people find you, see what you're up yeah. to? RookQS.com is our website. Kyle.Rose at RookQS. Email me. Also can contact through our website. We do a lot of stuff with Greenlight webinars, podcasts. So a lot of that stuff on there as well. We have a lot of content on our site as well with this information. I think we have a blog post about this as well. So definitely can look up some of this information on our site um, if you have additional questions. And, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts and at the end, some people ask you, how can they get a hold of you? So if you're listening and you just, you know, just went through, actually shoot him an email. I, I'm curious how many people we could get uh, to bother Kyle. But, yeah, uh, but anyway, yeah. I, thank you so much for being on the show, Kyle. I enjoyed the conversation. Yeah. Thanks again for doing this while you have COVID. That's, uh... <laughs> <laughs> ah, I, I wasn't trying to get sympathy, but yeah, I'll take it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Good conversation. Cool. Appreciate it, Kyle. Thanks Good to see you. All, All right. right. Take Bye. care, everybody. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. Just a few of the points I took away from this conversation are, first of all, we don't know when the FDA will start rolling out the transition from EUA, first of all, but per the current draft guidance, companies will have 180 days to comply. Secondly, the draft guidance gives a three-phased approach to the EUA transition. Phase one, in the first 90 days, manufacturers must start submitting any stored adverse events and should also start preparing marketing submissions if they plan to continue distribution after the transition. Phase two, after the first 90 days and before the 180 days, for devices that fall within applicable enforcement policies, they have to follow 21 CFR Part 806, which is reports of corrections and removals, and Part 807 subparts B through D, which is registration and listing. And then the second part of phase two is notification of intent for certain life-supporting and life-sustaining devices that should be submitted. Definitely check the show notes. We'll have more detail and link to the draft guidance as well. But phase three is after 180 days, FDA expects manufacturers to comply with statutory and regulatory requirements that are applicable to their devices. So that could be that the expectation is that marketing submission should have already been submitted and accepted by the FDA, including the manufacturer's transition plan. So another point that I got from Kyle is the best in class companies, they're not waiting to be told exactly what to do. They're already working towards compliance with the goal of true quality. If you enjoyed this episode, reach out to Kyle on LinkedIn and let him know. You know, I kind of gave the challenge, shoot him an email. Let's blow up his email box. But also, I'd personally love to hear from you via email, etienne.nichols at greenlight.guru, or look me up on LinkedIn. You can learn all about what we do if you head over to www.greenlight.guru. We're the only medtech lifecycle excellence platform. And on top of that, we built both a community and an academy where you can go to join the conversation or learn more about the things we discuss on the podcast. You can find both of those at community.greenlight.guru or academy.greenlight.guru. Next week, we'll be speaking with... Carrie Hobb on the subject of customer discovery for medical device companies. Very interesting topic, one I'm looking forward to, so definitely stay tuned. 
Finally, if you enjoyed this show, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. It helps other people find us. It also lets us know how we're doing. So thanks again. You're the best. Improving the quality of life. I know we say it a lot here at Greenlight Grew, and I'll bet it's something you probably said at your company too. We help babies breathe at night. We give you another day to be a dad. We give you back your eyesight. Those are some of the things the medical device industry and our customers are able to say because that's what they're doing. They're improving the quality of life for these individuals. Greenlight Guru is the only quality management software designed exclusively for the medical device industry. We built our software around standards like ISO 13485 and risk-based principles to help you bring safer devices to market three times faster. We're building the tools that will make it easier for you to build yours. If you're ready to find out how to improve the quality of life, contact greenlight.guru today.